recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christoginia Saturdays. Thank you for listening, and praise Yahweh. I have Sword Brethren here with me tonight. We've been doing a series, and this is the fourth and final installment in the series. It's President Roosevelt's campaign to incite war in Europe, the secret Polish documents. The series has been based upon an article written by Mark Weber of the Institute of Historical Review of that title in 1981. Now, as Brian and I have mentioned several times in the series, we do not trust Mr. Weber's work today. Mr. Weber has basically left the farm. He's now denying the value of Holocaust revisionism and towing the Jewish party line, I have to call it a party, that the Jewish myth that, um, that, that millions of Jews lost their lives or, or were hurt or damaged otherwise in the, in, in the events in Europe in the 1940s, which, which is simply a lie. And it's, it seems to me that Mr. Weber has sold out, and that's highly unfortunate. He, um, his work was valued at one time, and I'm not sure if I would value any of his current work. I don't know if you have anything to add to that, Brian. Well, his current work, I don't know a whole lot about it, but it just seems that, in general, there's been a decline in the quality of the work. His best stuff, you know, his best years are behind him. Well, well, absolutely. I'll just mention again that Carolyn Yeager has some critiques of Mr. Weber's current positions on the value of Holocaust revisionism and and, uh, and on some of his other work on her website at carolynyeager.net. The, um, I, I, in reference to this one document, I, I have here a, a, a Barnes Review from May, June 2003 in front of me, and that Barnes Review has an article in it. Professor Harry O. Elmer Barnes, who, whom the Barnes Review is named for, right, but who, who never um, was associated with the Barnes Review himself, on the end of the old America. And, and this article was written by Harry Elmer Barnes in the spring of 1958. And it was a devastating critique according to the Barnes Review, of Donald Drummond's, Donald Drummond was a, a, a court historian for the Roosevelt administration, of Donald Drummond's book, The Passing of American Neutrality, 1937 to 1941. And I just want to read one paragraph from this article because it, it's the words of Harry Elmer Barnes in 1958. However, it does substantiate to a good degree many of the things that, that, um, that Mark Weber wrote into this article in 1981, and it shows that, that these things aren't any, anything new, right? That, that Weber didn't make them up out of thin air, that these things have been around for quite some time. This knowledge has been around for quite some time. It just doesn't get any play in the Jewish media because it doesn't go along with the Jewish agenda, right? That, now, remember that Barnes is critiquing this book from, from this um so-called Professor Donald Drummond, and he writes, Professor Drummond presents a picture of Roosevelt in pre-war diplomacy as a pacifically inclined statesman, in other words, he wanted peace, right, who hated war, sought to prevent any European conflict, 
tried to end the war after it broke out and resisted pressure to get the United States involved. Now, now that is the general perception of Franklin Roosevelt and, and his, his role and actions leading into World War II unto this very day, and it's the exact opposite from the truth, right? As he summarizes the first two items on page 375, page 375 of Drummond's book, Roosevelt brought his counsels of restraint to bear in all major European crises from 1938 to the outbreak of the war. And that's a quote from Drummond, and Barnes goes on to say that there is no mention of Ambassador Kennedy's confession to James Forrestal that Roosevelt was urging Kennedy to put iron up Chamberlain's backsides so he would make no more conciliatory gestures after Munich, or the evidence of the authentic captured, and this bears on this paper that we're covering in this series directly, right? Or of the evidence of the authentic captured Polish documents that Roosevelt both directly and through his ambassador in Paris, William C. Bullitt, pressed Poland to resist the reasonable German demands in 1938 and 39, and urged the British and French to back up the Poles in the policy and actions that led straight to the war at the beginning of September 1939. It is not revealed that Roosevelt's support of the Munich appeasement was not due to his love of peace, but to his feeling that, if war broke out in 1938, the odds against Hitler would be so great that the war would be over before Roosevelt could lead the United States into it. In conjunction with Hitler, I'm sorry, in conjunction with Churchill, Roosevelt resisted all the efforts of Mussolini and Hitler to end the war both after the Polish defeat and after Dunkirk. And the truth is that after the German um, capture of Poland, basically it was a German and Soviet capture of Poland, right? But after the, the Polish defeat, Hitler tried to use that as leverage to seek peace at that time, and, and all of those efforts to seek peace were were, um, were ignored or, or buffed by the West. And after Dunkirk again, Hitler tried to use the, the apparent show of German mercy on British troops at Dunkirk as part of an appeal to the English people to have peace and not go to war, and the English people rebuffed him again. Of course, um, Churchill was prime minister by that time, and Churchill wanted, like Roosevelt, wanted nothing but war. Brian? We, we, the um, common belief at the time was that the Poles would fight for at least six months or longer and would possibly overrun a large portion of eastern Germany. And, of course, their entire state was swept from the map in 18 days, so that didn't turn out so well for the British and French. And as we know, they did not declare war on the Soviet Union. They never had any intention of it. And people say, oh, no, the Soviets were too strong. They, they couldn't do anything. They had to, you know, go at the greater evil, as though somehow Germany is the greater evil. And yet where they also believe someone actually told me, and they cited a mainstream historian, that Churchill wanted to land British soldiers in Norway, move across Sweden into Finland, and then use the soldiers to help Finland in the winter war with the Soviets. And I guarantee you, if British soldiers had wound up in Norway, they would have crossed into Sweden and destroyed or captured or somehow sabotaged all the iron ore mines, and then they might have gone into Finland to help the Soviets. 
And interestingly enough, when the um, the French were defeated in a four-week campaign, at the time, France on paper had the best army in Europe. They had slightly more tanks than the Germans, but they didn't employ them properly. And I believe they also had slightly more aircraft. The, the British and French combined had more aircraft, more tanks, more divisions, but the Germans just fought better. So the Germans basically crushed the Poles and then crushed the French in about 18 days in Poland and five weeks in France. And typically you would think if you're in a coalition-type war and, and the two main members of your coalition have just been knocked out in what amounted to six weeks, usually that, that's grounds for seeking some sort of peace accommodation, isn't it? Instead of acting haughty and thumping your chest and saying, no, we'll take Germany out. Britain was in no position to do any of that unless they had knowledge that the Americans would soon be coming into the war or that the Soviets were soon going to be coming into the war. I have to wonder what sort of coordination and collaboration there might have been on the part of Churchill and Stalin. You know, Churchill said, oh, we're not going to declare war on you for attacking Poland. You keep everything you've gained, but in a year or two you have to be ready to launch a juggernaut attack on Germany when they're busy in the West. I, I imagine there was probably some backdoor deal or behind-the-scenes deal. Well, well, you, you know, I can't talk about it. it it's um, Harry Elburn Barnes also talks about in this article all of the secret communications that were conducted for several years between um, Franklin Roosevelt and Winston Churchill, and, and that means that um, all of the normal diplomatic channels were being bypassed. All of the, the diplomatic protocols, uh, all of the um, the records that those channels and protocols would produce between, you know, in, in the exchanges between the two nations would be bypassed and that Roosevelt and Churchill had their own communications channels set up which were secret and which were confidential. And Churchill, according to Barnes, wrote in his book, Their Finest Hour, and I quote, the chief business between our two countries was virtually conducted by these personal exchanges between him, meaning FDR, and me. And, and, and it, it's um, tantamount to evidence of collu absolute collusion in the planning of everything that, all, all of the events and everything that eventually brought war in Europe and, and brought America into it. There's no doubt that this war was planned. The Polish documents that we've, we, we presented here from Mark Weber's article prove that the war was planned, that the war was instigated by, well, primarily by the Northeast Jewish banking establishment with, with FDR as their front man. That, that's the way I look at it. Absolutely. And I would believe, too, that the, um, the Rothschilds, who were still very powerful in Britain at the time, and they had you know, their hereditary titles, one of them in the mid-30s was asked if he was moving to a new residence or if he would be staying in his London penthouse, and he said, I won't move until the war is over. And this was before there, there was even a war. And he said, I'm going to move after the war. Shouldn't that have been a red flag that they knew a war was coming because they were planning one? Well, well, absolutely. They knew, they knew the war was coming. They were, they were planning the war, and, and the only people that were um, oblivious to it were, were the, it, it seems to me, the American public and, and probably most of the Congress. Uh, I can't see how how, Cong how, how 
the the um all of the key players in Congress could have been blind to what was going on. It's amazing to me that that um so many of them seem to be or or they turned a blind eye to it or or they were for it and and wanted it and and therefore didn't speak against it right that there are just too many people that have to be involved that there are too many people in in the armed forces that had to be involved in all of the treachery that was being perpetrated against the german merchant marines and and and, and the german navy that there were too many people involved in all of those basically illegal activities, which were acts of war that were, you know, where war was not declared, that they must have wanted it, that they must have gone along with all the Jewish propaganda that built up to the six years of war and simply by inertia understood that we were going to war. I can't fathom how else all of these people that they must have really thought that they were on the side of right and, and that's the power of Jewish media propaganda, that, that all of these people could have believed that they were on the side of right and went along with all of these basically nefarious activities which instigated this war. They violated the laws of our nation. They lied, deceived, and betrayed the people, and they sided with Stalin. Well, well, right, but I have no other way to quantify it except that perhaps the, the propaganda was so strong and they thought so strongly that they were on the right side of of the side of justice and, and um, or maybe a lot of them were scoundrels like Woodrow Wilson who had dirt on them. Well, well, I can't imagine so many top level admirals and, and, and commanders of, of U.S. naval vessels being scoundrels. I mean, I, it's hard to quantify. Or maybe it, it really is. I, I'd like to go back and interview a lot of them, but they're dead, right, for the most part. Yeah, you might find a few Swabies still still living. I, I think most of the key players are dead by now. And I think we've definitively established that the Red Army was well positioned for an attack on Germany in the summer of '41. And in 1939, Stalin passed a mobilization decree that by 1941 the army would go from 1.8 million to 5.1 million, with 18 million reservists being drafted. And I'm I'm well, right. Mobilization. The, the mobilization decree was proof that that was being planned several years in advance. You, you don't raise an army of 23 million unless you're planning on going to war, a large war. Well, well, that's been demonstrated time and again. But well, well, anyway, Harry Elmer Barnes in this article has um, actually basically given given full indication of the legitimacy of, of the data that we have here from Mark Weber, right? And maybe this article merits a, a program of itself one day because it's it's um it, it does a lot by itself to show that the war was being planned by Roosevelt and Churchill in advance. It, it's that there, there are a lot of sources for this knowledge. Somebody had sent me um, a a title of a book and, and I tried to get it for tonight's program and I couldn't find the email and I couldn't quite remember the book title and I feel pretty bad about that. But it was also a book written that that um. That, that showed that Roosevelt fully planned and, and perpetrated World War II, and as soon as I find it, maybe we'll have a discussion on that. All right. Well, well, so far in this, in, in this presentation, um, that this article written by Mark Weber, we, we've talked about these that these Polish documents and their importance in in proving that that Roosevelt was planning World War II. 
long in advance of, of any German host, open German hostilities towards Poland, and, and that he was actually instigating the Poles into creating an environment and a climate where Germany would, would, would attack Poland. And we talked about the media sensation that this, the, the release of these documents when they were discovered by the Germans had caused, and we talked about the authenticity of the documents themselves, how that was challenged early on, how the Jews and, and their interests tried to dismiss, and the media tried to dismiss these documents. However, they are far, um, that, that they have far too much credibility from important um, ambassadors and embassy sources and, and other sources, and, and the documents are absolutely authentic. authentic. That, that's these Polish, um, that these Polish diplomatic documents that this article is based on, it, it, they're wrapped up in, in they're, they're referred to sometimes as the Pataki Papers, but the Pataki Papers are only a, a, a small portion of the documents that the Germans had, and the documents themselves are now missing today, right? We discussed William Bullitt, and, and we discussed the steps that Roosevelt took to, to, um, to get us into the war, the path to war, in, in, in that section of this document, and now we're talking about the powers behind the president, and, and um, well, which demonstrates again the people that were instigating the war, and, and those who wanted it, and, and those who um, pushed him, pushed him, and the, the people that he was working for, basically, who, who had really wanted this war, the of the of the, um, the New York bankers and the Northeast Jewish establishment, I like to term it. I think Weber uses slightly different terms to describe them, but basically that's what it boils down to. All right. Would you like to read or should I? Would you like to begin? I'm not exactly clear. I lost my place from last week. Okay. The powers behind the president. President Roosevelt could have done little to incite war in Europe without help from powerful allies. Behind him stood the self-serving international, financial, and Jewish interests bent on the destruction of Germany. The principal organization which drummed up public support for U.S. involvement in the European war prior to the Pearl Harbor attack was cleverly named Committee to Defend America by Aiding the Allies. That's quite a name. I mean, Bill, isn't that? I mean, they might as well call it Committee to Entangle America in a Foreign Adventure. Well, well, they are expert at coming up with with names that that have that 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 noble sounding, you know, the the tone of a noble sound that describe noble sounding causes, right? Uh, I mean, they're expert at that. It's, so there's no doubt. They sell you a manure sandwich and they call it a tasty chicken meal. Well, well, right. The committee to defend America by aiding the Allies is really to the committee to defend Jewish banking interests in Europe by getting our allies to attack Germany. That, that, that's basically the, that would have been a more proper title. The Committee to Circumvent American Neutrality Law. Well, one of the points that Harry Elmer Barnes made in, in his critique of Donald Drummond's book, The Passing of American Neutrality, was that a lot of the Jewish, the, the international Jewish financial interests really saw the period from 1919 to 1939 as an armistice. They saw that period, even the Weimar Republic, and, and Harry Elmer Barnes, he, he describes this, even the Weimar Republic years where the Jews virtually controlled Germany, 
that that period was counted in with it, and, and that was from I believe thirty two or thirty three through thirty nine. But the, those years were counted in with basically what the international bankers saw as an armistice in a longer war against the German people themselves. That that longer war was what was um, reckoned as having lasted from 1914 through 1944. And by 1944, the, the, well, well, or at least by Germany's surrender in 1945, the, the international bankers had, had managed to, um, to abscond all of Europe, right? I, I, either by turning it over to the communists or, or by taking it over for, you know, the, the, the establishment in the West would, would virtually control it. You know, um, Marshal Ferdinand Foch of France, he pushed for Germany to be basically left defenseless and helpless with no industry after World War One. He said the Treaty of Versailles didn't go far enough, and he said this is not a peace, it is an armistice for 20 years. Well, he must have known it was an armistice for 20 years or so because they were planning on attacking Germany again in the near future. Well, well, right, Every, un, until Germany was totally destroyed because the, the bankers wanted absolutely no resistance to a, a worldwide central banking system which would, um, in essence, govern the world. And, and that's what we have today, isn't it? Absolutely. And they, they uh, I mean, that's what we have in the last 50 years. Some patriotic German officers, though, who were at Versailles, they remarked to the French that they would be back one day. So I guess they must have been optimistic, and rightly so. I think they knew that peace was well, possible with the long-term peace was not possible with France, given how France was treating Germany at Versailles. The principal organization which drummed up public support for U.S. involvement in the European war prior to the Pearl Harbor attack was cleverly named Committee to Defend America by Aiding the Allies. President Roosevelt himself initiated its founding, and top administration officials consulted frequently with committee leaders. Although headed for a time by an elderly, small-town Kansas newspaper publisher named William Allen White, the committee was actually organized by powerful financial interests, which stood to profit tremendously from loans to embattled Britain and from shrewd investments in giant war industries in the United States. At the oh. end of 1940, I was just going to say, so it's okay when some nobody from Kansas helps the Roosevelt Committee, but if some nobody from Oklahoma circulates a paper with, you know, 15 readers about Jews and banks, they have to put them on trial for sedition. Right. At the end of 1940, West Virginia Senator Rush D. Holt issued a detailed examination of the committee, which exposed the base interests behind the idealistic-sounding slogans. I'm sure he wasn't um, West Virginia Senator Long. The committee has powerful connections with banks, insurance companies, financial investing firms, and industrial concerns. These, in turn, and, and these are the words of this West Virginia Senator, right, Rush D. Holt. Oh, he was defeated these after that. Uh, I'm sure he was defeated. These, in turn, exert influence on college presidents and professors, as well as on newspapers, radio, and other means of communication. One of the powerful influences used by the group is the 400 and social set. The story is a sordid picture of betrayal of public interest. The powerful J.P. Morgan interest, 
with its holdings in the British Empire, helped plan the organization and donated its first expense money. So we see a um, an organization that looks on the surface like a grassroots organization, but which is really financed by the, the New York banking establishment, right? And, and um, uh, I'm sure if we scratch the surface of a lot of grassroots organizations throughout American history, we would probably find that same thing. And Holt died at age 49 in the 50s. It says that after 1940, he was very unpopular for opposing the 1938 Naval Expansion Bill, opposing membership in the World Court, not supporting the League of Nations. And then in 1940, he voted against the Selective Training and Service Act of 1940. And he also lobbied for strict neutrality. And then in 1940, he lost his bid for renomination. So as of 1941, his term expired and he was out of office. And then he died about 15 years later. Well, I want to know why he was so unpopular, and, and I want to know, um, well, well, what I really want to know is what the hillbillies in Appalachia care about the World Court and the League of Nations. <laughs> I think what it means that his own party probably did everything they could. Sorry? The, the Jewish-controlled media did everything they could to destroy him, right? That's what Absolutely. it sounds like to me. I'm sure they um, undermined his campaign. They probably ran three or four Democrats against him in the primary. Isn't that what they typically do? Yes. With a lot of outside money, right? That's what they typically do in in, in those um, the, 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 in in the, the senatorial and congressional races in the states outside of the, the Northeast and the West Coast, right? Some of the important figures active in the committee were revealed by Holt. Frederick R. Cudert, a paid war propagandist for the British government in the U.S. during the First World War, Robert S. Allen of the Pearson and Allen Syndicated Column, Henry R. Lucy, the, the influential publisher of Time, Life, and Fortune magazines, Fiorella LaGuardia, the fiery half-Jewish, I don't know how anybody could be half-Jewish, mayor of New York City, Herbert Lehman, the Jewish governor with important financial holdings in war industries, and Frank Altschul, an officer in the Jewish investment firm of Lazard Ferez with extensive holdings in munitions and military supply companies. If the committee succeeded in getting the U.S. into war, Holt warned, American boys will spill their blood for profiteers, politicians, and patriots. And this is interesting. This, this is, um, there's an interesting pun here. Patriots is spelled P-A-Y. T-R-I-O-T-S, and, and we have a lot of those today, right? If war comes on the hands of the sponsors of the White Committee, there will be blood, the blood of Americans killed in a needless war. In March 1941, a list of most of the committee's financial backers was made public. It revealed the nature of the forces eager to bring America into the European war. Powerful international banking interests were well represented, J.P. Morgan, John W. Morgan, Thomas W. Lamont, and others of the great Morgan Banking House were listed. Other important names for the New York financial world included Mr. and Mrs. Paul Mellon, Felix M. and James F. Warburg, and J. Malcolm Forbes. Chicago department store owner and publisher Marshall Field was a contributor, as was William Avril Harriman, the railroad and investment millionaire 
who served as Roosevelt's ambassador in Moscow. Of course, Jewish names made up a substantial portion of the long list. Hollywood films star Samuel Goldwyn of Goldwyn Studios was there, along with David Dubinsky, the head of the International Ladies' Garment Workers' Union. The William S. Kelly Foundation, which had been set up by the head of the giant Columbia Broadcasting System, contributed to the committee. The name of the Mrs. Herbert W. Herbert H. Lehman, wife of the New York governor, was also on the list. Without an understanding of his intimate ties to organized Jewry, Roosevelt's policies make little sense. As Jewish historian, I don't know if you could really have a Jewish historian, right? Maybe a Jewish um, recorder of lies. A, a Jew Jewish specializes in lying about historical events. As Jewish historian Lucy Davidowitz noted, quote, Roosevelt himself brought into his immediate circle more Jews than any other president before or after him. I think Obama is a, is a good challenge, right? And so was George Bush. Felix Frankfurter, Bernard M. Baruch, and Henry Morgenthau were his close advisors. Benjamin V. Cohen, Samuel Rosenman, and David K. Niles were his friends and trusted aides. This is perhaps not so remarkable in light of Roosevelt's reportedly one-eighth Jewish ancestry. You know, one drop of Jewish blood and you're a Jew, right? There shouldn't be really any consideration that somebody is half a Jew. In his diary entry of 1st of May 1941, Charles A. Lindbergh, the American aviator hero and peace leader, nailed the coalition that was pushing the United States into the war. The pressure for war is high and mounting. These are the words of Lindbergh, right? The people are opposed to it, but the administration seems to have the bit in its teeth, and is hell-bent on its way to war. Most of the Jewish interests in the country are behind war, and they control a huge part of our press and radio and most of our motion pictures. Today they control the whole thing. There are also the intellectuals and the Anglophiles and the British agents who are allowed free reign, the international financial interests, and many others. And that was from Charles A. Lindbergh, the wartime journals of Charles A. Lindbergh, published by New York, Hart Brace, Harcourt Brace and Jovanovich, 1970. As far as um, who started the war, Stalin in 1939 denounced France and England, and he was quoted in Pravda stating that it is an undeniable truth that Germany did not attack France nor Britain and that France and England attacked Germany and declared war on Germany and thus bear sole responsibility for the war. And now, of course, some people dispute that that, actually, that, that quote was actually made. And that was from Stalin. Yeah, that, that's in Pravda. There was also mentioned that Stalin held a, a secret speech or a secret meeting with the Politburo on August 19, 1939, and talked about how they would let the capitalists fight amongst themselves and then clean up afterwards and wipe out the fascists and the capitalists. And mainstream historians deny that Stalin even met with the Politburo on that day, but Viktor Suvorov points out that there's ample evidence that a meeting and a secret speech did take place, yet there's no real record, or I should say public record, 
And that's another sign that Stalin's regime was really a criminal regime because we have a written record, a transcript of every speech Hitler ever made, don't we? He didn't hold secret meetings with no records taken. Well, well, right, and I think it was even Suvorov that admitted that, that Stalin basically acted like a mob boss. Hmm. What where Adolf, what where, and, and everything was done covertly and in secret, and, and there were no records kept of his high-level meetings, where on the other hand, Adolf Hitler had um, two stenographers with him, I believe, at all times, and a historian, and, and um, every, everything that he said was, was recorded. All of his actions, all of his official actions, for certain, were, were well recorded. Well, essentially, Stalin was just a train-robbing bandit from Georgia, and he never got away from that bandit mentality of cloak-and-dagger scheming and plotting the next robbery in the coffee house. No doubt. No doubt. The, the, the fault I find with Suvorov, even though he has a lot of good information, and we, we employed a lot of it when we um, discussed Operation Barbarossa and, and a few other events in, in early World War II history here last year, is that Suvorov draws a picture of a Joseph Stalin that is engineering the entire war and, and planning it all himself. And, and I don't buy that picture. I sincerely believe that the war was engineered and planned in the city, in London, and that Stalin was taking orders from them, right? So Stalin was just one Jewish pawn and a large group of Jewish pawns. Well, well, there's no doubt. Joseph Kennedy shared Lindbergh's apprehensions about Jewish power. Before the outbreak of the war, he privately expressed concerns about the Jews who dominate our press and world Jewry in general, which he considered a threat to peace and prosperity. Shortly after the beginning of hostilities, Kennedy lamented, quote, the growing Jewish influence in the press and in Washington demanding continuance of the war. Uh, I think growing is probably an understatement. On to um, the next section of this article. Betrayal, failure, and delusion. Roosevelt's efforts to get Poland, Britain, and France into war against Germany succeeded all too well. The result was untold death and misery and destruction. When the fighting began, as Roosevelt had intended and planned, the Polish and French leaders expected the American president to at least make good on his assurances of backing in case of war. But Roosevelt had not reckoned on the depth of the peace sentiment of the vast majority of Americans. So in addition to deceiving his own people, Roosevelt also let down those in Europe to whom he had promised support. Seldom in American history were the people as united in their views as they were in late 1939 about staying out of war in Europe. When hostilities began in September 1939, the Gallup poll showed 94% of the American people against involvement in war. That figure rose to 96.5% in, in December before it began to decline slowly to about 80% in the fall of 1941. Weber notes that today there is hardly an issue that even 60 or 70% of the people agree upon. Well, it seems that most people agree that Jews are great, they're God's chosen people, and we can trust them. 
Weber has a footnote here, an excellent essay relating and contrasting American public opinion measurements to Roosevelt's foreign policy moves in 1939 to 1941 is by Harry Elmer Barnes, and it's titled, Was Roosevelt Pushed into War by Popular Demand in 1941? How could he have been if we just covered that 96.5% were against it in December 39, and even 80% still in fall of 41? It seems to me that Roosevelt dragged the nation kicking and screaming into a war that it did not want. Well, well, I would have to examine that issue deeper. A lot of the people that were on the side of the war were people who simply wanted jobs. And today, I don't think you'll find any veteran that fought in World War II who was ever part of the neutrality movement, they'll all tell you, oh, we should have gone after Germany in 33, we should have gone after Japan when they invaded Manchuria in 31, we should have, you know, um, we definitely should have done something at Munich, that was a, a betrayal, but at the time, they probably didn't, they, they probably didn't care too, you know, um, too darns what was going on in Czechoslovakia or Poland at the time, they were probably just thinking about going to the picture show, weren't they? I probably met a few dozen World War II veterans in my early life, you don't run into them too often today, right? And, and everyone that I had met, even uh, I even worked with a guy that was that, that served combat duty in the South Pacific Islands and, and, and he was involved in quite a few operations there. And all of the people I met that served in World War II were absolutely proud of what they did. That the propaganda seems to have permeated the brains of every one of them and, and saturated them. Roosevelt was, of course, quite aware of the intense intensity of popular feeling on this issue. That is why he lied repeatedly to the American people about his love of peace and his determination to keep the U.S. out of war while simultaneously doing everything in his power to plunge Europe and America into war. In a major 1940 re-election campaign speech, Roosevelt responded to the growing fears of millions of Americans who suspected that their president had secretly pledged United States support to Britain in its war against Germany. These well-founded suspicions were based in part on the publication in March of the captured Polish documents. The speech of the, 19, of, of the October 23, 1940, was broadcast from Philadelphia to the nation on network radio. In the most emphatic language possible, Roosevelt categorically denied that he had pledged in some way the participation of the United States in some foreign war. I give to you and to the people of this country the most solemn assurance, quoting Roosevelt, there is no secret treaty, no secret understanding in any shape or form, direct or indirect, with any government or any other nation in any part of the world to involve this nation in any war or for any other purpose. We now know, of course, that this pious declaration was just another one of Roosevelt's many brazen, bald-faced lies to the American people. The, the, shame of, the, the shame of American history, the, the biggest shame of American history, especially these last um, 
50 years is that no matter how bad history proves any politician, his cabinet, to, to have been a conspirator, a liar, that they are never chased down. That these people are never chased down. The, the living co-conspirators are never pursued. Everything is always swept under the rug. Not only that, that what we they idolize what we, <clears throat> what we have absolutely no um, will as a nation to, to punish our leaders after their crimes are exposed, in other words. And, and it's, sometimes it's 20, 30, 40 years later, but, but those icons are continued to be idolized even long after their treachery it is well known by the public. Roosevelt's policies were more than just dishonest, they were criminal. The Constitution of the United States grants authority only to the Congress to make war and peace. And Congress had passed several major laws to specifically ensure U.S. neutrality in case of war in Europe. Roosevelt continually violated his oath as president to uphold the Constitution. If his secret policies had been known, the public demand for his impeachment would very probably have been unstoppable. The Watergate episode has made many Americans deeply conscious of the fact that their presidents can act criminally. And this ties in with what I was saying last week about the, the power of the media to pick and choose when the law gets enforced, when the law doesn't get enforced, simply by beating the drums of, against one, one political figure or another. The Watergate episode has made many Americans deeply conscious of the fact that their presidents can act criminally. That affair forced Richard Nixon to resign his presidency, and he is still widely regarded as a criminal. No schools are named after him, and his name will never receive the respect that normally goes to every American president. But Nixon's crimes pale in significance when compared to those of Franklin Roosevelt. What were Nixon's lies compared to those of Roosevelt? What is a burglary cover-up compared to an illegal and secret campaign to bring about a major war and the deaths of about 60 million people, none of them Jews? Well, maybe a couple. Those who defend Roosevelt's record argue that he lied to the American people for their own good, that he broke the law for lofty principles. His deceit is considered permissible because the cause was noble. While similar deception by Presidents Johnson and Nixon, to name two, is not. This is, of course, a hypocritical double standard, and the argument doesn't speak very well for the democratic system. It implies that the people are too dumb to understand their own best interests, which seems to be true. It further suggests that the best form of government is a kind of benevolent, liberal, democratic dictatorship. Isn't that what we have? Roosevelt's hatred for Hitler was deep, vehement, passionate, almost personal. Well, Roosevelt was a Jew. This was due in no small part to an abiding envy and jealousy rooted in the great contrast between the two men, not only in their personal characters, but also in their records as national leaders. Superficially, the public lives of Roosevelt and Hitler were astonishing astonishingly similar. 
both assumed the leadership of their respective countries at the beginning of 1933. They both faced the enormous challenge of mass unemployment during a catastrophic worldwide economic depression. What they didn't have was they both didn't have Jewish bankers loaning them money. Each became a powerful leader in a vast military alliance during the most destructive war in history. Both men died while still in office within a few weeks of each other in April 1945, just before the end of the Second World War in Europe. But the enormous contrasts in the lives of these two men are even more remarkable. Roosevelt was born into one of the wealthiest families in America. His life was utterly free of material worry. He took part in the First World War from an office in Washington as Undersecretary of the Navy. Hitler, on the other hand, was born into a modest provincial family. As a young man, he worked as an impoverished manual laborer. He served in the First World War as a frontline soldier in the hell of the Western battleground. He was wounded many times and decorated for bravery. Not if you ask Jim Condit, right? In spite of his charming manner and soothing rhetoric, Roosevelt proved unable to master the great challenges facing America. Even after four years of his presidency, millions remained unemployed, undernourished, and poorly housed in the vast land richly endowed with all the resources for incomparable prosperity. The New Deal was plagued with bitter strikes and bloody clashes between labor and capital. Roosevelt did nothing to solve the country's deep, festering racial problems which erupted repeatedly in riots and armed conflict. The story was very different in Germany. Hitler rallied his people behind a radical program to transform Germany within a few years from an economically ruined land on the edge of civil war into Europe's powerhouse. Germany underwent a social, cultural, and economic rebirth without parallel in history. I have to add, and Weber does not mention, that Adolf Hitler basically solved. Germany's racial problem also. Absolutely. And because I just wanted to um, say, Bill, that how could Roosevelt, with all the racial problems in America, who does nothing to resolve them, how could he bring America into a cultural economic rebirth? It seems that Weber doesn't mention that, that the main reason Roosevelt was unable to achieve results was because he did not pursue a racial agenda. He did nothing to increase the prosperity or the stability or the strength of white America because he hated white America. Well, well, absolutely. It it shows that Weber even had a tinge of liberalism in 1981, right? And he he was changing liberal ideas in 1981. It seems from Weber's perspective, the racial problems in America, he would probably refer to lynching, race riots, and whites beating up blacks. Where I would say the the racial problems in America had to do with the push for integration. Absolutely, that, that's the the um, the mother of all racial evils is integration. Germany underwent a social, cultural, and economic rebirth without parallel in history. The contrast between the personalities of Roosevelt and Hitler was simultaneously a contrast between two diametrically different social political systems and ideologies. I think it had a lot more to do with that. It, it had to do a lot with, um, well, well, ideology is true. Adolf Hitler wanted Germany for Germans, and Franklin Roosevelt wanted America for Jews, right? Yeah, Germany for Jews. 
Yes, and Germany for Jews. Thank you. And yet it would be incorrect to characterize Roosevelt as merely a cynical politician and front man for powerful alien interests. Certainly he did not regard himself as an evil man. Well, of course he didn't. He sincerely believed that he was doing the right and noble thing in pressuring Britain and France into war against Germany. Of course he did. Anybody who was an agent for Jewish interests would believe that he was doing the right thing in desiring to destroy Christian Germany. There's well, no the right, doubt. The right thing by whose moral standards, though? The standards of the Talmud. Well, well that's exactly what I'm driving at. The, the wolf thinks it's good to eat sheep, right? I mean, you can't convince a wolf that it's evil to eat sheep. Come on. Like Wilson before him and other sense, Roosevelt felt himself uniquely qualified and called upon by destiny to reshape the world according to his vision of an egalitarian universalist democracy, the Jewish ideal. He was convinced, as so many American leaders have been, that the world could be saved from itself by remodeling it after the United States, which was far from an egalitarian universalist democracy at the time, but it was well on the path, right? Presidents like Wilson and Roosevelt view the world not as a complex of different nations, races, and cultures, which must mutually respect each other's separate collective identities in order to live together in peace, but rather, according to a self-righteous missionary perspective, that divides the globe into morally good and evil countries. That's the, 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 the um, general thrust in the media to this day, right? That, that's the general consensus presented to us by the media today. Even George Bush had the axis of the evil, right? Yeah, you beat me too that I was going to say, you know, there's us and them, we're good, they're bad, and we have to destroy them or make them adopt our ways. You, you drink Coke and eat McDonald's and wear Levi's or you're evil and, and have a, cent, a Jewish-controlled central bank, right? In that scheme of things, America is provident, the providentially permanent leader of the forces of righteousness. Luckily, this view happens to correspond to the economic and political interests of those who wield power in the United States. Well, well of course it does. The view was created by the Jewish bankers in, in New York, right? He can't, he can't come out and name them, though, even at this early in his career? Well, well, he did in... in um, he did talk about the, the, the Jewish financial, the, the Jewish financiers, the Jewish media figures, and the Jewish Hollywood figures when he talked about the powers behind the president, which we opened this discussion with tonight, right? I guess he just doesn't feel that he has to keep beating that drum. Would you like to um, read the next section, President Roosevelt's War? President Roosevelt's War. In April 1941, Senator Gerald Nye of North Dakota prophetically predicted that one day the Second World War would be remembered as Roosevelt's War. If we are ever involved in this war, he said, it will be called by future historians by only one title, the President's War. Because every step of his, since his Chicago quarantine speech of 5th October 1937 has been toward war. And my comment here that he probably wouldn't have said this if it had, if it occurred to him that future historians were all going to be Jews or Jewish-inspired people, and they've written our history. Roosevelt was the man who saved the world. 
The great Absolutely. American, the great American historian Harry Elmer Barnes believed that war could probably have been prevented in 1939 if it had not been for Roosevelt's meddling. Indeed, there is fairly conclusive evidence that, but for Mr. Roosevelt's pressure on Britain, France, and Poland and his commitments to them before September 1939, especially to Britain, and the irresponsible antics of his agent provocateur, William Bullitt, there would probably have been no world war in 1939 or perhaps for many years thereafter. In Revisionism, A Key to Peace, Barnes wrote, President Roosevelt had a major responsibility, both direct and indirect, for the outbreak of war in Europe. He began to exert pressure on France to stand up to Hitler as early as the German reoccupation of the Rhineland in March 1936, months before he was making his strongly isolationist speeches in the campaign of 1936. This pressure on France, and also England, continued right down to the coming of the war in September 1939. It gained volume and momentum after the quarantine speech of October 1937. As the crisis approached between Munich and the outbreak of war, Roosevelt pressed the Poles to stand firm against any demands by Germany and urged the English and French to back up the Poles unflinchingly. There is grave doubt that England would have gone to war in September 1939 had it not been for Roosevelt's encouragement and his assurances that in the event of war, the United States would enter on the side of Britain just as soon as he could swing American public opinion around to support intervention. And of course, since that never happened, he was never able to swing American public opinion, as we've just read earlier. He had to provoke Germany into declaring war, and he did that with the naval campaign. He was fighting an undeclared naval war against Germany. Germany got tired of it and declared open war. Roosevelt had abandoned all semblance of neutrality even before war broke out in 1939 and moved as speedily as was safe and feasible in the face of anti-interventionist American public opinion to involve this country in the European conflict. One of the most perceptive verdicts on Franklin Roosevelt's place in history came from the pen of the great Swedish explorer and author Sven Hedden. During the war, he wrote, The question of the way it came to a new world war is not only to be explained because of the foundation laid by the peace treaties of 1919, or in the suppression of Germany and her allies after the First World War, or in the continuation of the ancient policies of Great Britain and France. The decisive push came from the other side of the Atlantic Ocean. Roosevelt speaks of democracy and destroys it incessantly. He slanders as undemocratic and un-American those who admonish him in the name of peace and preservation of the American way of life. He has made democracy into a caricature rather than a model. He talks about freedom of speech and silences those who don't hold his opinion. Isn't that what the Jews always do? They scream freedom, 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 but if you don't share their view, you don't have any freedom. That, that's what they're doing again today. I mean, that, that's what they've done ever since. I, I mean, with a couple of lulls, seeming lulls in the 70s and 80s, perhaps it's only my, my, my own cognizance that, that, that's asleep. They, they seem to have carried that same pattern out ever since the, the, the end of World War One, oh. ever since the Wilson administration. Free, freedom of speech to them means that the ACLU can be free to blaspheme God. Sodomites can be free to go at it in public, and anybody's free to advocate any bizarre, perverse, degenerate idea 
But if we point out that Jews run the central bank and are ruining our nation, that's not free speech, that's hate, and we need to be incarcerated. Well, well, if we point out that bizarre, perverse, bizarre perversities and, and disgusting public acts, well, well, disgusting acts conducted in public, if we point out that they're evil, then that's hate speech, right? So people are free to do whatever they want, but we're not free to take issue with what they're doing. Well, well, you cannot side with morality. If you side with morality, today you're basically labeled a Nazi. A fascist. Synonym. To them, it's a synonym. And they, they realize, though, that Christian and fascist go hand in hand, so they see, they see all Christians as fascists, and more or less rightly so. Well, well, and and that's you know it's incredible that people that more people in the mainstream do not notice that the words Nazi and fascist are coupled with the, the thought of of um, Christianity and and those words are used they're leveled at Christians in a slanderous manner rather persistently by Jews in Tel Aviv by Jews in New York by Jews in Los Angeles, and, and mainstream Christians don't get it. Mainstream Christians don't get that the Jews equate Christian, Nazi, and fascist, right? That, that still hasn't sunk into the cognizance of mainstream Christians, probably because they don't have a damn clue as to what a Nazi or a fascist really is, right? But, but it's amazing to me... It's amazing to me that Christians haven't um, comprehended the equality of the three terms, Christian, Nazi, and fascist, what, which comes from the Jewish mouth and, and which resides in the Jewish mind. Well, if you're a true Bible-believing Christian, your political system is probably going to be somewhere along the fascist national socialist spectrum. And the end result is going to be a political system driven by religious convictions where the Jew cannot thrive and has to leave the nation. Well, well, let me say that I studied um, well, well, I studied ancient Greek and Roman literature and, and Christianity and, and original biblical literature for 12 years um, straight, with practically nonstop. And, and then I read Mein Kampf. And when I read Mein Kampf, uh, I came to, um, to to a full respect of Adolf. Oh, I guess we'll wait for Bill to dial back in. He must have had a phone problem. Okay, my Skype. Right, okay, you, are back, you are back, Bill. The last word I heard, you said that you had read Mein Kampf and you came to a full respect of Adolf and then everything cut out. Well, well right. When I read Mein Kampf, a after having studied Christianity and, and biblical and classical literature to, to the extent that I did, I read Mein Kampf and developed a full respect for Adolf Hitler and a full understanding of, it, of, of his the, the, the principles behind National Socialism and, and that underlie all of his um, philosophical, economic, and, and political ideals 
because I realized that they were all based on solidly Christian principles. Even if he's not quoting the Bible in Mein Kampf, his, his philosophies, economic, his social philosophies, that they are based on solidly Christian principles that only a real Bible-believing Christian could understand. That the, the, the typical churchgoer would never understand. And, and for some reason, the Jews understand this. And that's why they equate fascist, Nazi, and Christian. And you say the typical churchgoer would never understand it. I've often said that Protestants are Catholics who open their Bible, fundamentalists are Protestants who read their Bible, and identists are fundamentalists who understood what they just finished reading. Well, right, and that's probably a pretty good correlation. All right, to continue. He talks about freedom of religion and makes an alliance with Bolshevism, he, of course, being FDR. Well, well, right, but the real common thread is Talmudism, right? That's the real common thread between Roosevelt and, and the bankers in the city and, and, and the Soviet regime, right? That, well, that's the real thing they have in common is Talmudism. When they talk about freedom of religion, what they really mean is they're going to free society from Christian morality and impose the Talmud on it, where our property becomes their property. They talk about separation of church and state, but I've never heard the president say separation of synagogue and state. In fact, I could show you a picture with George W. Bush surrounded by a bunch of rabbis who were giving him policy advice or orders, depending on how you interpret the scene. They're white and menorahs on the White House lawn now, right? So, so much for separation of synagogue and state. We don't get that. He talks about freedom from want, but cannot provide 10 million of his own people with work, bread, or shelter. He talks about freedom from the fear of war while working for war, not only for his own people, but for the world, by inciting his country against the Axis powers when it might have united with them, and he thereby drove millions to their deaths. This war will go down in history as the War of President Roosevelt. Officially orchestrated praise for Roosevelt as a great man of peace cannot conceal forever his crucial role in pushing Europe into war in 1939. It is now more than 40 years since the events described here took place. For many, they are an irrelevant part of a best-forgotten past. But the story of how Franklin Roosevelt engineered war in Europe is very pertinent, particularly for Americans today. The lessons of the past have never been more important than in this nuclear age, for unless at least an aware minority understands how and why wars are made, we will remain powerless to restrain the warmongers of our own era, and that ends the paper prepared by Mr. Weber. And it's occurred to me, examining the propaganda being directed at Iran today, that they're all Nazis, that Ahmadinejad is the next Hitler, he's going to kill all the Jews, he wants to develop a nuclear weapon and kill six million Israelis in a new holocaust. They're trying to prime the pan for a war of extermination against Iran in the same way that they did against Germany in the 30s. The propaganda is the same, the talking heads are the same, these are probably the grandchildren or maybe great-grandchildren of the same journalists and the same Jews in the 30s who were dripping with venomous hate against Germany. Is Iran controlled by a Western Central Bank? No, to my knowledge, no. Well, well there you go, right? 
was Germany controlled by a Western Central Bank? No. No. So I'm sure if Ahmadinejad said, gentlemen in New York, gentlemen in London, open a, a Rothschild Central Bank in Tehran, they would you know, clap their hands, applaud, and say, oh, a responsible Iranian leader, let us help this man develop nuclear power plants and bring energy to his populace. Right. Yeah, you know, it's funny, Weber says, for unless at least an aware minority understands how and why wars are made, we will still remain powerless to restrain the warmongers of our era. Well, well, there is an aware minority which understands how and why wars are made, but it's Goldman Sachs. Exactly. <laughs> the, the, the aware minority are the warmongers themselves. Right. It's, it, I don't know. I just had to say something about that. It, it seems amazing that less than 1% of the nation can drag the world into a war, but here we are. Well, well, Roosevelt's Four Freedoms, that, that's the Four Freedoms speech which, which Harry Elmer Barnes was, was referring to, was made to Congress in, in, in um, January 6, 1941. And he talked about the freedom of speech and expression, which is fine as long as you go along with the liberal democracy, right? He talked about the freedom of every person to worship God in his own way, well, which is just ecumenism and an excuse for Jews, right? And he talks about freedom from want, well, which is really an imposition of world's communism. And he talks about freedom from fear. And, and the only true freedom from fear is in Christ, right? Absolutely. And with Roosevelt in power, though, how can you be free from fear? You have to constantly worry he's going to confiscate any gold or silver you have. You have to worry about your firearms freedoms because he passed the first national firearms legislation you have to worry whether or not the supreme court's going to continue being an independent objective judiciary that's diligently upholding the constitution or if there's going to be a packed and stacked body of roosevelt's henchmen to rubber stamp all of his decisions so it seems that america in the 30s was a nation that was gripped with fear or at least it should have been roosevelt was establishing a tyranny he was establishing the legal foundation for an, an unconstitutional tyranny. Well, many facets of that have already been established. I mean, it's been a gradual, it, it's been a slippery slope since the Civil War, right? Well, our country's been in long decline since the 1850s. Okay, that concludes the series. And, and next week's program will be announced and we'll discuss, um, well, we'll discuss what we're going to do in the near future over the next few days. And I just want to say that I don't believe we're going to see any sort of NSDAP Hitler-type political salvation in this nation for a number of reasons. The religious ones aside, politically, our nation is a racial ethnic hodgepodge. Germany was 99% white German. They all spoke pretty much the same language, and they were either Lutheran or Catholic. America has, you know, 400 different denominations ranging from rapture cults to Mormons and Scientologists. And there, there's no common basis. There's no way any charismatic figure can rise up and gain mass appeal by making an appeal to something common and shared because there's nothing common and shared in this nation. It's just everybody trying to get as big a slice of the pie as possible. So I don't, I don't see a political solution. Well, well we have no political solution. And and the political solutions, clowns like Ron Paul uh, are, and I'm going to call him a clown because he is a clown. He, he, he's been in Congress for, I don't know, 26 years. 
You can't be in Congress for that long without doing the will of, of, of the Jews. No congressman has, that, that has actually attempted to effect any substantial change for the better in this nation has lasted more than a term or two. Well, it, look at um, Rush Holt. They ran him out after one term. Well, well right. It, it's... um. Yeah, you know where you where you are. I mean, senators have been run out of North Dakota that were patriots. It, it's it's that no matter where you what where you are based, you're not unreachable because the currency is the same everywhere, and the Jews print it right. You can't defeat politically the people that print the money. It can't be done. We have no political solution in this country. Period. Clowns like Ron Paul exist. For one reason, to convince good people that they can solve our dilemmas at the ballot box. Well, no, if we had a few more votes, if we only had a few, and we're going to get them next time, if we only have a few, and it never happens, there is no political solution. The the solution is for people to get out of the system. That's the beginning of a solution. And until we, we, we um, yeah, you know, Adolf Hitler could appeal to the, the um, e- emotional bonds and the ties that people had in, in Germany were blood and soil, right? And he could appeal to that in Germany because the country was still um, 85 or 90 percent ethnically homogenous for the most part. Well, well, we can't make that appeal here but because even the people that are, left that are white are, are basically fully programmed in, in, in the racial program of the Jews. Absolutely. They believe it, and, and they believe it, and, and they adopt it, and, and, and they act it out every day. And, and I, I, don't know, I don't know how many Negroes have to be lined up behind them to rape them before they wake up. And what you said about voting our problems away if voting could resolve our situation, the Jews would abolish elections and rule as Stalinists, wouldn't they? Well, well, absolutely. But the bottom line, and, and we would have had a, a, a much more serious revolution in this country for, for certain, a, along the lines of the Bolshevik Revolution, I'm sure. But but the bottom line is that you can't out you, you can't out campaign the people that print the money. You can't do it. It can't be done. All right, so we will pick up next week, probably getting into the Patriots of the 30s, or we'll have a topic by then. Yes, we will. Thank you for listening, and praise Yahweh. Praise Yahweh. Thank you.